please be advised. We will be discussing subjects that may not be suitable for all audiences, and will include subjects that some will find challenging, traumatic, or triggering. Welcome to You Don't Fight Alone, a podcast sharing the stories of those of us successfully living with mental illness and how we got here. So my rock bottom came not far from where I'm sitting today, actually, in a small town called Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Um, I had just checked myself out of the long-term care facility that I had been staying in for about three months, a little over three months, like three months and two days, something like that. And I'm driving to Cornville, Arizona to, to live with my grandparents, which is a very small community outside of Sedona. And on the way, literally the first day, it's, it's New Year's Day of 2010, I get hit by a cab, my car does, in New York City. And it bent, it bent the rear driver's side wheel completely inward. And look, this is a thing, like it's a shitty thing to start the year, okay? Uh, but normally you just go, great, I'll put it in a shop for a week and then I'll be fine. Waiting patiently for things is not a skill I possess. And so the next day I set out on the road to drive 2,500 miles in a car on three wheels. And that day was terrible. Uh, as it, you know, I mean, this was a terrible decision. I, I, I knew that then. I definitely know it now. Uh, I made it to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is really only four or maybe five hours from New York, but it took me all day. It's blizzarding. Uh, at one point, I'm walking on the side of the highway because I popped that tire. It was a horrible day. So I pull off the road into Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and the only thing open is a small truck stop motel and the gas station next door, which is where I got my dinner, which consisted of a Pop-Tart. So I'm sitting on this just disgusting carpet in this truck stop motel. And that moment I felt more alone than I'd ever felt in my life because I had just been so sure of myself a day before, right? I checked myself out of this long-term care facility. Uh, you know, long story short again is I was finally getting off of all the medications I was on. I was very excited about this. And here I am a day later, just flat out alone. And I did what most people who struggle with substance misuse do in, in that moment. I stopped higher power and nothing came. I mean, I sat there and it was just a terrible night. I was completely alone and I felt as soulless as you can feel. And after a while, I decided that, you know, if I was going to get better, I was going to have to do this thing myself because clearly nothing was coming for me. And uh, that's what I did. I pulled myself together. The next day I got back on the road in a, in a rented car and made it to, uh, to Cornville, Arizona. But, but that night on January 2nd of 2010 in Johnstown, Pennsylvania was my rock bottom. My name is Jay Schiffman. And so in my preteens, I was diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, and about four or five years later was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I, that one ADHD, sure. 
definitely. Uh, the bipolar disorder was a misdiagnosis that led to a whole bunch of, of issues. Uh, and, and today I still struggle with some depression, some anxiety and OCD. That one I've dealt with my whole life. I, you know, uh, have been diagnosed with, with, um, a host of things. Um, which of those I sort of, uh, which of those mantles I would pick up and wear and eh, we'll see. But, um, you know, mostly it's the, the, the general depression, uh, anxiety, uh, OCD, and I've been told that I have PTSD, but I'm not really sure that I agree with that one. So it doesn't, in August, 2009, I attempt suicide. The first time, um, I pour out what I think is going to be a lethal dosage of my medications. And I call a friend of mine to tell her that I'm going to kill myself. And while we're on the phone, she texts a couple of friends of ours who rush over and stop me. And as I love to say when I'm speaking, you know, this is where the story could have ended. I could have said, I have a problem. I need help. Um, you know, they could have said, we're, you know, clearly there's something wrong here or whatever, but none of that happened. And the next night, uh, learning from my mistake the night before, I took the pills and then called the, the same friend. And this time, um, I remembered it as she called the cops. Now, recently she and I chatted because every probably couple of months I message her and I'm just like, Hey, remember how you saved my life? I'm very thankful for that. And, uh, we actually got into a discussion about it not long ago. And she said, you know, I don't think I called the cops. I think I text the same friends and they called the cops. So somebody called the cops. And that night, all I remember is being led out of my house in handcuffs and having my head slammed into the side of a cop car as I was lowered into the back seat um, because I was overdosing. And, and I spent that night handcuffed to a bed at the University of Cincinnati Hospital. So uh, I remember very little of that night, obviously. I would sort of come to every once in a while and, and really wanted out, but I really don't remember much. And the next day, almost like a movie scene, I remember reality sort of flashing back to me. And all of a sudden I wake up, uh, like conscious comes back to me, and I'm in an intake facility at a lockdown unit. And I'm like, where the fuck am I? What is going on? How did I get here? You know, I have no idea anything. Um, so I spent three weeks there and, you know, they added more medication, took away some, all that kind of fun stuff. And then I get discharged to the care of my longtime therapist and my parents who decides they're going to send me to a facility in Massachusetts in, in the small town of Stockbridge, which is where um, Norman Rockwell is from. And so if you've ever seen his beautiful, you know, sort of uh, picturesque American dream works like it, it, this is what the town looks like. And there is a facility called Austin Riggs. And I was sent there. Uh, it's a beautiful facility. And uh, they work with people that are struggling from substance misuse and issues of mental health. So 
the facility is beautiful. I can't say a lot about the treatment method. It didn't, it was not great. It was a pretty horrible experience, but, uh, I got to know people that are struggling with issues of substance misuse. I got to know people who, um, were really going through issues of mental health. And I started to recognize this doesn't, this doesn't look like me, like what they're going through, um, isn't my experience, but the people who had struggles with substance misuse, I was like, I get that. Like that looks familiar. And so again, I have the, my records from this facility and I walk, I can, I've read the notes of my therapist about the day that I walked into his office and told him I wanted to get off of medication. And of course he said, no, um, he did say he was interested in the idea. Again, these are in the notes but only if the end result is to get me off all medication and start on new ones. And I wasn't interested in that. Um, and also, like I said, the facility, it just wasn't for me. It was a bad experience. Um, there were too many people were like losing their lives there. There was a, it, it was pretty horrible. And, um, the, the tipping point for me, again, I'm going back and forth with my therapist on this cause I really want to get off the medication, uh, but the tipping point came in late December of 2009 when one of my like only friends there, uh, I stopped her from killing herself. And the next day I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm done. I can't do this. So um, I wasn't discharged. Uh, I was there against my will, but I wasn't court ordered. So I was able to, as an adult, check myself out. And uh, the, they tried to keep me. Um, there's a procedure in place where you essentially have to um, when you, you sign yourself out and then you have to go to one more group and, and in that group, the only topic of the day is, you know, Jay is leaving. And so therapists, uh, other, other, you know, patients were just merciless. I mean, it was, it was really difficult. Uh, if you're not sure that you want to leave, it can be very peer pressuring to make people stay. Uh, and, and, you know, they would say, this is how they make sure people who shouldn't be leaving, you know, don't, um, now lucky for me, like I said, after you stop someone from killing themselves that you care about, it's very easy to be like, I don't give a fuck with any y'all say I'm getting the hell out of here. But it can, it, it was, it was not a fun day. Um, and, and then I left and I had to spend that. I wasn't even allowed to be there anymore. So I, I spent that night on the floor of a girl who I, another friend of mine who had moved to outpatient. Uh, I spent the, this was New Year's Eve of 2009. I spent that night on her floor and in January 1st of 2010, jumped in my car and started driving. diagnosed with ADHD as a preteen. Uh, as I was saying earlier, the side effects of this um, really inflamed some underlying issues that I, I, as an adult, manage. At the time, I'm a teenager going through puberty or before that preteen. And, um, you know, the therapist that had diagnosed me with ADHD said, you know, you're showing signs of a mood disorder. And I don't remember ever questioning him. We trusted him. My whole entire family did. I had other brothers that were seeing him. He was at the time and still, I believe, is a well-respected therapist. And so if he said I was showing signs of a mood disorder, I, I was, right? And uh, by my mid-teens, that becomes the the label of bipolar disorder. 
by my late teens, I'm on medication for that as well. And, and you know, things kind of my, my, my mental health never got better despite being on all these medications. Um, you know, at the time, I suppose we were told that these little sort of steps forward were signs of progress. But in reality, you know, hindsight being 2020 and all that, uh, it was pretty foolish of us to believe that. So um, by my early uh, 20s, I am starting to misuse pretty much every prescription that I'm on uh, and also other substances as well, because when you're on and by this time I'm on five or six different medications every day uh, to the point where I actually um, about a year, two years ago, I got my my records from Walgreens, from CVS, um, from this therapist, from um, the place that I was sent in Massachusetts. I got all of my records. And I took my prescribing records to a doctor who I was friendly with, and I said, what would you call this uh, – someone being on this level of medication in an outpatient setting? And he was flabbergasted. We're sitting there over coffee, and I can, like, remember his face. He's, like, looking at this, and he's like, Jay, this is this is criminal. So I'm on a lot of different medications, and I'm taking more than I'm supposed to be taking of all of them. And at this point, I'm 21 years old. And, and when you're doing that, to both go up and come down, you have to take a lot of other substances, right? So if I wanted to party on the weekends, I was doing a lot of hallucinogens. If I wanted to relax at the end of the day, marijuana was my only solution. And by 22, 23, I am really struggling. Um, I'm taking... Uh, more than what they believe to be a lethal dosage of one of the drugs every day. And I, uh, you know, getting to the point where I, I, I am refilling months worth of prescriptions in 10, 12 days. So that is the period of substance misuse from about 19 to 23. This is something that I have actually wrestled with because I still believe that, you know, look, I'll be honest, my attention span is not long. Um, I am at times, uh, and this is more the OCD when I get stuck on certain thoughts, but then with the ADHD on top of that, it's almost like um, it, when I was a teen, they would say that I had no filter. You know, uh, if I thought something, it came out of my mouth. And um, so, so at the time, you know, I'm that fifth grader who is more concerned with making his friends laugh than paying attention to anything on, you know, in class. I was in detention. I actually set a record for my fifth and sixth grade classes. I was in detention so often because I just could not pay attention. And and we know now, and again, I like to say this then, but a lot of this is that our, our, our education system is very antiquated and it does not fit uh, a lot of what is needed for, for, for current uh, children. In fact, there's a really fascinating article called, I believe it's the drugging of the American boy that kind of focuses on this period of, of my age. And it sounds like maybe yours as well of, of forcing, you know, all these young men, mostly men, but some women as well to be diagnosed with ADHD and to, to get on medications to fit them through a, an education system that doesn't really work as well anymore. You know, there's this misconception, thanks mostly to Hollywood, 
that, you know, you go through your rock bottom and then you get off medication and you're good. Yay. Finish line. And obviously that's not in any way the case. So I went through my rock bottom the next day I start driving a couple of days later, I end up in Arizona and that started my detox phase, which took almost four months. Uh, I was on so many medications, like I was saying, that the combined withdrawal would have literally killed me. In fact, um, you know, there's there's this old joke that if you come into a detox facility on heroin and clonopin, which is what I was taking almost more than what they thought was the lethal dosage every day, they get you off of heroin first because it's easier. So I was on, I couldn't just stop taking what I was taking. The clonopin alone would have killed me cold turkey and not, you know, let alone these other five things I was on. So I did what's called a step down detox where you take a little bit less at a time. And then a couple days later, or whatever the case is, depending on what your scientific regimen is, you take another step down. And that took me almost four months. In spring of 2010, I was finally off of all of these medications. That being said, you know, like I was saying, that doesn't exactly um, that's not when you hang the victory banner, right? That's just when you're back to square one. So I had to start rebuilding my life. And I moved from there to Dayton, Ohio, to work with a buddy at his parents' coffee shop. Um, moved from there back to my hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, and started going to school again and rebuilding friendships and building new friendships. And and so for me, the first real, okay, I, I'm, I'm doing this moment was when I graduated college with that psychology degree in 2012. Uh, at this point, I'm, you know, um, about, let's see, spring of 2010, so a little over two years in recovery. But the, the real victory moment, the moment that completely changed my life and I knew I was good was when I really felt that my my age and my development had finally caught up with each other because my brain took a good amount of years to sort of rehab itself. And not only that, it had been denied a lot of this development for years because I was so inundated with chemicals. And there was a point in 2015 where I stood on a stage in Cincinnati and told my recovery story for the first time. And I didn't want to do this. I was terrified, but I have a buddy who runs an organization that, that gives people, you know, it, 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 it's a storytelling event and it, and it, they ask influential and well-known Cincinnatians to tell their origin story. And I finally did it. And that was the night where I kind of looked out at this audience and I'm telling them everything I've been through. And I went, okay, you know, I'm here. I'm, I've made it. There is a, a lot of paranoia in my story about, you know, there are still some ramifications of this drug abuse. And there are days where, you know, if I haven't had my coffee and I'm a little sluggish, I start freaking out that, oh, my God, this is when my brain disintegrates again, you know. But um, there is – I've, I've talked with a lot of neuroscientists to try to understand what went on inside my – like literally, physically inside my head during this period. and. Um, you know, luckily the only silver lining was that I was still very young and I could go through this and, and I could rebound in a way that I couldn't, if I was even this age, you know, my brain was able to bounce back, 
But there's a lot of science uh, studies that have been done to show that it takes anywhere from 10 to 15 years where you can still see in a CAT scan the, the, the impact of addiction on someone's brain. And if they're older, it's even longer. And so, um, you know, for me, I'm only 10 years out. And so there is definitely a realistic uh, piece where I go, you know, what is still happening in there? But I truly could feel the difference for a, a good four to five years where I could feel, you know, I am not um, as as socially, I think, aware or or as uh, physically aware of of uh, some things that I should be, even the people my age are like, I wasn't as mature. And a lot of that was that for so long, I had one been destroying my brain with chemicals, but two, I had been teaching myself that whenever I had an emotion, whenever I had a thought I didn't like, the answer was pop a handful of pills. And so a lot of that was relearning how to be an adult. Let's talk about meds for a second because I think this is incredibly important since we're on this topic. I also make it clear whenever I speak, I am not anti-medication. I know I spend a lot of time both when I'm being interviewed and also when I'm speaking, completely trashing them. Um, while I do take a lot of issue with this current trend, which is uh, sort of putting people on high levels of mind-altering, mostly benzodiazepines, but also some antipsychotics, without also undergoing concurrent behavioral work with a therapist, I don't think that meds completely are bad. I think that they can be really helpful for a lot of people. I do think they're overprescribed, and I think that that's the case because it's easier to throw somebody on some medication than to do the work with them that needs to be done that to actually get down to, well, what of this can be worked on and what of this does need medication? It's easier just to, just to say, take this Valium and let's see what happens. I have a buddy who uh, a couple years ago we grabbed lunch and he said, so I wanted to ask you something. He said, my son, who at the time was seven, uh, was recently um, suggested as ADHD and they want to put him on Ritalin. Uh, I know that you went through a similar uh, experience. Can you tell me about it? And, and so we talked for a while. I was 11, 12. He was seven. And they wanted to put him on this stuff. And and luckily, my buddy is very hands-on, and he switched to schools and got his son into a better place for him. But think about, you know, that is the extreme minority, that you have a parent who is able to do that. And we wonder why, you know, when I was – when I turned one year old in 1987, there were roughly 400,000 kids uh, diagnosed with ADHD in America. By the time I uh, was put on it myself, that number had blossomed to 2 million in 1997. Just last year, that number was 4.5 million. So – this stuff is exploding and we wonder why. Well, my buddy's story is why, because if you're not hands on and someone that you trust says, hey, give your kid this pill, it might help them. What are you going to do? This is a, a, a big problem. Um, perfect. The example I love to give because I think it just is it's eerie is when I first started telling my story two guys who I went to high school with reached out to tell me that they had seen my speech online and, and were sort of 
blown away because their stories were not dissimilar from mine. And what, what makes that even more ridiculous is the three of us sat in a row in 11th grade math class. And we were all going through this very similar experience and none of us knew that the other were struggling the way that we were. And what's, what's interesting to me, and I was, I, I do a lot of consulting around the issues of substance misuse. And I was just talking to a client about this the other day. There's this idea that there's like a, um, you know, a standard uh, algebraic equation for struggling with substance misuse. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. We really don't know all of the variables that go into substance misuse struggles yet. And we also don't know to the degrees that those variables impact your struggle. So perfect example is that, you know, you and I could go through the literal exact same experience as a lot of people are. You come out the other end you know, not not worse for the wear because it's not going to be good for anybody, but 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 okay. Whereas I go through, you know, I, I I had two suicide attempts, an overdose, all this stuff, and and you know that's just the sort of X factor that we don't quite understand yet. There was a lot of conversation around the just terrible passing of Chadwick Boseman that that reminded people that you have zero understanding of what's going on with somebody else. That that what you see, even if someone tells you what's going on with them, to actually understand it, you you know nothing, you know? And and the fact that we had this in just brilliant actor who became a mega star and a hero to a lot of people while struggling with cancer is just unfathomable. So take that and, and take it maybe to a, you know, less degree, but that is literally true about everybody. You know, you don't know what it feels like to be them. And, and we're, we're approaching this understanding when it comes to trauma. You know, we used to think that trauma was for frontline warriors and all this kind of stuff. And it is, but we're now understanding, just as I was saying earlier about substance misuse, you and I could go through the exact same experience and the way it will impact us could be night and day. And so this idea that, you know, oh, well, you know, we both, you know, went through that. You you should just be able to suck it up the way I did or whatever the case is, is just complete and total BS. So you are a unique person, you know, a person listening who doesn't get it. I would never begin to tell you I understand something that you went through that I have zero context for. I would say I'm empathetic. I would say that I'm here, that I'm, I will support you. And as someone who has struggled, I understand struggle. What I would never tell you is, oh, I know how that feels because I don't. If you went through substance misuse in the exact same way I did, okay, maybe we have some overlap. But you know, people ask me all the time. I, I've actually had someone, not all the time, I've had someone ask me, you know, oh, but you never, you know, use needles. How can you work with people who struggle with substance misuse? 
I am so thankful I didn't use needles. I would, oh my God, uh, that shit is terrifying to me. But the, just because my origin story was very different than a lot of people and just because the substances I used were very different doesn't mean my experiences were. I also, you know, spent many a morning on my bathroom floor going through withdrawals. You know, I also spent a lot of time laid out on my couch, really unable to do much more. And that is an experience that if you haven't gone through it, you just don't understand. And if you have, there is that shared trauma that is universal. And so in that respect, it's like finding the places where you can relate and being empathetic from there. Uh, so I say this every time I've, I've mentioned this earlier, but I, I make sure that I say it every time I speak, every time I, I uh, get interviewed on my podcast, reach out. If you are hearing this, if you are struggling, if, um, you know, whatever the case is, number one, I can guarantee you that there's somebody in your life who will listen. Number two, if you don't actually think that there is, reach out to me. You know, you can find me on my website, which is jshiftman.com. It's that easy. You can find me on social media. It doesn't matter to me where you find me. I've had people reach out on every platform you can imagine because, you know, they, they hear this and they go, you know, well, this is how I reached out and they found me. I will listen. You know, as we say in this industry, we would rather talk to you for two hours today than attend your funeral for two hours tomorrow. So reach out. Somebody will be there or I will be here um, because the days of struggling in silence are over because we're deciding that they're over. There's not some end date. We are just deciding that that shit is over. Reach out. For more information, please visit youdon'tfightalone.org. The You Don't Fight Alone podcast is a production of You Don't Fight Alone Incorporated, produced and engineered by James Fisher and Keaton Lycom. The information presented by You Don't Fight Alone is not intended as medical advice. If you have mental health questions, please talk to a mental health professional.